0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News.
1: When we invaded in 2001, Afghanistan was a basket case at the bottom of virtually every human development indices. It's 16 years later, we've spent $117 billion. It remains at the bottom of virtually every human development indices. So, you know, and So doing more of the same, adding more soldiers, spending more money, doing more nation building, that's not going to work. This is a lost war.
0: You're listening to Reuters War College, a discussion of the world in conflict, focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Hello and welcome to War College. I'm your host, Matthew Galt. My guest today is journalist Douglas Wissing. He's here today to talk to us about Afghanistan America's Longest and Least Reported War, and also the subject of two books by Mr. Wissing, the latest of which is called Hopeless but Optimistic. Uh, Doug, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. Glad to be with you again, Matthew.
0: All right, so Afghanistan is uh, remarkably back in the news. Uh, U.S. President Donald Trump is reportedly considering a troop surge. Uh, At this point, Afghanistan is America's longest war. And uh, back in 2009, Barack Obama tried this. He had a troop surge where he sent an additional 30,000 troops to the country. And the numbers that Trump is reportedly considering are between three and 5,000. So my first question for you, Doug, is how many troops will it take to win Afghanistan?
1: That is a great question that's been asked down through the millennia. Alexander the Great asked that question. He had 90% of his of his horsemen tied up in Afghanistan, he he said, "Afghanistan, an easy country to march into, a hard country to march out of. It's for good reason called the graveyard of empires." At the at the peak, we the U.S. had a hundred thousand troops in Afghanistan at the height of the Obama surge, and you know, here we are. Uh, it's now in our sixteenth year. Uh, that surge failed miserably. Now the, the Pentagon is asking. The Trump administration to have a, a mini surge, Surge 2.0. Some of the numbers are floating around from 3,000 to 5,000 without any indication as to why another few thousand soldiers would make a difference when 100,000 didn't. We do have to remember that the Taliban insurgency has been growing at double digits since at least 2005, and uh, each year growing at double digits. Well, we we do need to remember that the long-held special forces dictum is that if an insurgency isn't shrinking, it's winning. And that's the case that we have here.
0: Uh, you, You bring up a really good point and something I don't think a lot of people have considered, because in a lot of the reporting on this issue, people say that we're in a stalemate or that there's a deadlock in Afghanistan. And that's not really accurate, is it?
1: No, we're really looking at a lost war. We're propping up a a particularly dysfunctional and feckless proxy government that is among the most corrupt on the planet that ranks at the very bottom of all the lists relating to rule of law. we're, We're not talking about Switzerland here. We're talking about a particularly corrupt government that ranks among the most corrupt governments on the planet. And It's not a stalemate. This is a lost war. And, you know, we're trying to reset what those indices are, where we get to call it a stalemate. But the reality is uh, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, CIGAR, the congressionally mandated uh, oversight agency, noted that security incidents in Afghanistan were at their peak in 2016, and that continued into 2017. The Taliban now controls, the Taliban led insurgency now controls about half of the country. There are shadow governments in virtually every province. They control quite a number, including Helmand, where uh, I was during the last withdrawal. Um, They are knocking on the door of provincial centers all over the country. And insurgencies are centripetal, they move from the countryside toward the government centers after the capital, Kabul, is besieged. We're seeing uh, successful attacks all the time. And I can testify that it's an incredibly unsafe place. Attacks and kidnappings are just endemic there.
0: And just so people have kind of a, a sense of how quickly the Taliban has turned this around, especially in the past year, Cigar releases quarterly reports. Uh, the most recent one, like you said, showed that the Taliban had taken 50%. The one before that, just three months before that, I think they were only up to, they were about a third of the country, 30%. So it's, they're pushing and they're winning, like you said.
1: Well, and and I, I tend to view all of those estimates with uh, a jaundiced eye. I, I have had some security analysts that I that I trust have told me that, Essentially, about ninety percent of the countryside is controlled or is influenced as a term that's often used by the taliban and i I can tell you that i've been in provinces what they were terming influenced and uh, you know <laughs> the fact that you have to set up a full scale military mission to go two miles in a town that's supposedly government controlled i mean in you know you're in full battle rattle in armored vehicles with machine gunners on the top and you practice that mission for a couple of days to make sure everybody's on the page to go two miles in what's termed a government-controlled capital. If that's influenced, uh, you know, what is it when it's controlled?
0: And what is, when we say shadow government, what exactly do you mean?
1: It means there is a parallel government that's, that is, you know, there's a governor, there's a Taliban governor, there's a sub-governor, there's, There are Sharia courts, and and we have to remember that Afghanistan is among the most corrupt governments on the planet. So if you are so unfortunate as to take a case to court, you're going to be there for years, and it just becomes an opportunity. It's a predatory government, so it's never going to get resolved. Or you can take it to the Sharia court, the Taliban court that's considered pretty honest, you get pretty quick justice they resolve land disputes and, and afghanistan has got you know land disputes to go back to when there was a king and then there was a communist government then there was us then there you know so land disputes are just rife in afghanistan and we've spent hundreds of millions of dollars to try to quotes resolve the land title issue and it's still not done we're still like studying what to do it's Afghanistan is a country about the size of Texas. There's only about 30 million Afghans. This is a finite problem. The the land title issue is just one of the examples of how badly we've failed, how badly the United States nation building and um, development and aid projects have failed. We've spent $117 billion at the last time I looked, so it's higher now. That's more money than we spent on the Marshall Plan adjusted for inflation on a country that is about 30 million people
0: when we invaded
1: in 2001 afghanistan was a basket case at the bottom of virtually every human development indices it's 16 years later we've spent 117 billion dollars it remains at the bottom of virtually every human development indices life expectancy literacy electrical generation you know uh, infant mortality It's at the bottom of all of them after that, after 16 years, you know, and so doing more of the same, adding more soldiers, spending more money, doing more nation building, that's not going to work. This is a lost war.
0: So at this point, do we even have any idea what winning would actually look like?
1: Uh, I certainly haven't seen anything that defines that. We're essentially running without a strategy now. There is no end game. You know, the Obama administration kicked the can. They didn't want it to collapse on their watch. And so now the Trump administration is some of his advisors, Bannon and Kushner, are saying that Obama or, you know, that Obama's war didn't work, that, you know, and that counterinsurgency and nation building was a disaster. And Trump has run on a program of America first. So they're saying, why are you trying to do nation building on the other hand the generals you know generals fight the last war it's just unfortunately the last war is still this one so they want to do another escalation without really being able to explain what it's going to accomplish or what the goal is what what does victory look like that's a great question has not even been addressed
0: Let's let's talk about those administration officials because from the reports that we're getting, the the guy in the room that's really pushing this troop surge is National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster. That's right. Do you have any idea? What, what's your sense of him, and why is this war important to him?
1: Well, both H.R. McMaster, the current National Security Advisor, and General Nicholson, who is commanding the forces in Afghanistan, have both both of their careers have really been defined by Afghanistan. And the National Security Advisor, General McMaster, he commanded one of the major nation-building military units in Afghanistan that's called Operation Transparency, which was an effort to try and get some handle on the corruption that led through the entire Afghan government up to the very top and reached down to the Taliban, where we were, as soldiers constantly were reminding me, we were funding both sides of the war. We are funding both sides of the war. We're pouring money in, and everybody's getting their cut of it. You know, everybody's in on the take. One intelligence officer, very smart intelligence officer said, it's the perfect war. Everybody's making money. So uh, McMaster really was deep into the counterinsurgency strategy. He was he was right there at the very top of those kind of nation-building things. And, you know, he's going back to what he knows. He's, he's really a supporter of, you know, we're trying to set up now new nation-building things. And they didn't work before. They, you know, they got, the, they, they got sidelined when it became politically complicated because the Karzai government didn't want us to pursue that. They didn't want us to pursue uh, the corruption at the highest levels of the Afghan government. And, and the new government, the Gani the National Unity Government, a particularly misnamed uh, organization, there's no real push. They say, "Oh, yes, we're 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 going to fight corruption." The country remains at the very top of the of the corrupt country list.
0: It, it feels odd to me that someone that was supposedly such a crusader for transparency and anti-corruption wouldn't get the message. That, that feels strange
1: that McMaster doesn't isn't willing to do that.
0: Yeah. I mean, he, he had a front row seat for all of this, right? I mean, he's seen the same reports that you and I have seen and, and has met the same people. Why is that such, why does he have such a different takeaway?
1: I, you know, the military is trained to continue the mission no matter what. That's just the way they're hardwired to do that. And when all you got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, Upton Sinclair, I'm sometimes remembering the muckraker Upton Sinclair, who famously said it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. And I think as I have analyzed these toxic networks that that include ambitious American careerists, corrupt Afghan insiders, for profit american corporations the elected officials that are dependent on the contributions from those corporations and the insurgency that that network that connects it all it makes sense to me everybody has something to gain they, you know if the i've been with military officers out in taliban country and you know there's kind of a sense of giddiness if if an ied goes off on the you know near the convoy because Everybody gets a combat arms patch, and that means that that colonel may go from being a colonel to being a brigadier general. There's just there's a lot of medals to go around, and with that, a better gig. That's on the military side, on the on the development and the military industrial side. Giant contracts, gargantuan contracts beyond almost our ability to comprehend. Sitting over here, where yeah, you know, we're trying to scratch together money to fix our our collapsing infrastructure and. You know, bake sales for the schools and whatnot, and and the the military, industrial, and development industrial contracts that are, have accomplished nothing. We we have to remember that the American taxpayers are on the hook now for about a trillion dollars just for the Afghanistan war, and as the Pentagon once more, we spent fifty billion is what was appropriated approximately for. 2017 operations, military and development operations just in Afghanistan, you know, somewhere around a billion dollars a week. And if we contrast that with what was appropriated for the fight against ISIS in Syria, that is only about five billion. So, fifty billion versus five billion. Afghanistan, while it is the forgotten war, as you mentioned, remains by far our largest foreign military engagement. It is just sucking money. And and I'm also reminded of Osama bin Laden's pronunciamento back in 2004 where he announced the big strategy really was to bleed us until bankruptcy. You know, he he said in in one of his... his, one of his talks, he said, you know, we we send a couple of al-Qaeda guys over there, a couple of jihadists. They wave their flags. The general sends all those soldiers over there. We send a couple more guys over there, wave the al-Qaeda flag. You know, and and I keep thinking the bleed-till-bankruptcy strategy is working like a charm right now. And we've got these other fights. We've got some serious, you know, national security challenges. Russia, North Korea, ISIS, run down the list, and we're draining our resources off on this lost war.
0: On that distressing note, we are going to pause for a break. I am Matthew Galt. You're listening to Reuters War College. We're sitting here with Douglas Wissing, and he's talking about the possibility of another troop surge.
1: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs.
0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. In Afghanistan, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to War College. I'm your host, Matthew Galt. With me is journalist and author Douglas Wissing. His newest book is Hopeless but Optimistic. It is about Afghanistan, and that is what we are talking about today. Uh, Just before the break, you were talking about the other national security threats that are, are far more important than Afghanistan, but one of those being Islamic State, and we now know that Islamic State is operating in Afghanistan. Does that change this calculus at all, do you think?
1: Well, you know, that's, it's a little bit complicated there because the Islamic State did, did begin to germinate in Afghanistan, and that was the result of us killing one of the Taliban leaders, and that was a splinter group was the, a big part of that particular element. There's about 20 different insurgent groups in Afghanistan, the largest, of course, being the Taliban by far. And at its height... There were only about 2,000 ISIS fighters in Afghanistan that were tagged as being ISIS. And you have to remember, the U.S. opened a bank in Syria in our fight against ISIS. And the one thing the Afghans are not is stupid. They understood you could get more money by saying everybody's ISIS. So you have some instances where insurgent groups that maybe weren't ISIS suddenly got you know that tag put on them. But what's happened is ISIS does have an international agenda. The Taliban is essentially very nationalistic. They just want to get the infidels out of their country. That is their goal. So what you had was the Taliban was fighting ISIS also. The Taliban fighters were fighting ISIS. And this year, that number now is down to about 700. Now, We then made a fatal miscue. We dropped the Moab bomb, 22,000-pound bomb, on ISIS fighters over in Nangarhar, which is by far the largest collection over in eastern Afghanistan by the Khyber Pass. We dropped that. And what we did was the Taliban spoke out against the use of that bomb. That's our largest non-nuclear bomb. And they're saying Afghanistan is once again being used as a testing ground for U.S. weapons, like we did with the drones, and it's kind of hard to argue with that so we 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 melded the Taliban and ISIS together against a common enemy us by the use of that bomb so yeah and also former president karzai spoke out against that. it as did some of his diplomats we had a lot of afghans that were really enraged by the use of that bomb
0: the taliban and Islamic State are more friendly with each other after the use of that bomb.
1: They at least allied on that particular issue.
0: I've got a, I've got a, what may be an odd question. Do you? It's in in our discussions. It, it feels like the Taliban. Uh, and obviously, they understand the country better. They're better, quite frankly, at winning the hearts and minds. They're more efficient. Would it have behooved us to try to establish some sort of power sharing with them or incorporate them into the unity government? Do you think that was a mistake?
1: Well, I mean, one of the, the root causes of all of this chaos is the constitution that the U.S. and the other Western powers, primarily the U.S., imposed on Afghanistan that centralized all of the power after we invaded 2002, yeah, 2001. That that constitution centralized all the power in a way that never had been the case in Afghanistan. It's always been an extremely decentralized country It's a tribal country and the key was kind of having lots of small power groups all over the country we centralized everything under the Kabul government and we centralized corruption in a way that's never happened before it was when we invaded Afghanistan it was you know somewhere in the middle of the list in terms of corruption it was a lot less corrupt during both the Soviet era and during um, the Taliban era but you know it's kind of in the middle and it just skyrocketed to the top of the list. At one point, it was number one in the world. It just went, you know, skyrocketed, it, you know, leapt up the list with a bullet, as they say. And
0: um, there's been many
1: criticisms that we really made a major mistake by not bringing the Taliban back to the table after, right after the invasion and let them take part in some of the power sharing. It would have brought the Pashtuns back. It would have, you know, Negated what went on, and then of course we had the the disaster of shifting our focus to Iraq, and you know completely lost interest in Afghanistan, and, and the insurgency took off in those period in that period. But yeah, it was a big miscue, and and now we're saying, oh well, you know one of the arguments is that we can uh make it so difficult for the Taliban because you know it's quotes a stalemate, which it, as we've talked about, it isn't that they'll come to the negotiating table. So let's think about this. When we had 100,000 soldiers in the country, the Taliban were essentially biding their time. They only controlled about 7% of the countryside. They didn't go to the negotiating table then. We were desperately trying to get them to the negotiating table to the point where it, it was almost like a comedy to watch how we were contorting ourselves to do this. And it failed. They didn't need to do it. They knew they were winning. They were just waiting. They were just husbanding their forces. So, you know, the Taliban have a great line that they've been saying forever, talking about asymmetrical war where the U.S. has so much of a technical, you know, technological advantage. They say the Americans have the watches, but we have the time. They're very patient. You know, if they if if there's another surge, if we you know nobody's got the the guts to send in another fifty thousand soldiers again. There's that's not going to happen. I don't believe. But they'll just wait. You know, they they can meld back into the population. It's clearly a popularly supported insurgency. You know, it's you know, and they they have a um, they have someone who'll help them out. They have other regional uh, partners that will provide. Safe havens will provide supplies. It's they can wait us out.
0: Were you there during the two thousand nine surge? Yeah. What was I'm wondering what it was like from the American perspective, how the troops felt. The
1: troops are trained to be positive, can do spirit, accomplish the mission. So there was a period where people did feel like there was some hope. It was it was a pretty brief period, I have to say, and pretty quickly People began to understand the structural issues of what was going on, the corrupt government. We were, our stated goal was to bind the people of Afghanistan to Jeroa, to the, go, you know, the, the government, the Islamic state of, of Afghanistan. And it was a totally corrupt predatory government. So that's tough, isn't it? You just you know you can kind of think of how would it, it would work in the United States if, if our government was totally as predatory as the Afghan government was and is, and then a foreign power came in and demanded that we ally with it, there would be resistance, don't you think?
0: There absolutely would be. So is there a possibility that this discussion about this next troop surge and the possibility of this troop surge makes people reassess why we're there and maybe we leave?
1: Well, one would hope. I, I do need to mention that there is a new bill that has um, been introduced, H.R. 1666, that has been introduced by a bipartisan group of congressmen to, to literally debate the Afghanistan war. We really haven't had this discussion since 2001. We're still running on the same congressional authorization that was passed in a, an emotional frenzy after 9-11. That's still the authorization for this war. Sixteen years later, and the HR sixteen sixty six is hoping to have a congressional debate about whether we should continue this war. That seems pretty reasonable to me, and it would cut off funding, you know, and, and you know it would have to be reauthorized and whatnot. The authorizations for the appropriations are given. Ten minutes debate in Congress, five minutes for and five minutes against. That's it. Fifty billion a year, and it goes on.
0: What do you think the end looks like on the ground? Eventually, America will leave, and then does the Taliban just become resurgent, and things look like it did before we got there, but with a bunch of new infrastructure?
1: Well, the infrastructure is falling apart. I mean, that's not even a given. That that was such badly made infrastructure. I mean, the ring road. Uh, Afghan, yeah, you know, the Afghan Highway One was so badly made at an astronomical cost. Uh, you know, I've driven down Highway One in convoys, and uh, there are potholes on that thing big enough to swallow a donkey and a cart. It's it was very it's very poor infrastructure. Schools that were falling down almost before they were completed. The wells that have drained the you are know, completely disrupted. You can go on and on and on. My book, Funding the Enemy, has got lots of instances, and then in, in Hopeless but Optimistic, journeying through America's endless war in Afghanistan, it, uh, it's a series of, of anecdotes of, of a journey across the war zones of Afghanistan, just pointing out this bizarre uh, waste of billions and billions of dollars, and you know, kind of what that looks like. What's it look like to be traveling across the lost war? Um, so the infrastructure, we haven't done anything. I mean, I, I spoke to a lot of Afghan officials. And they all agree they have this golden opportunity that's all been lost. It, it's, the Afghans, as I mentioned, remain at the bottom of every human development indices, and they're the victims of what's called phantom aid, where there's a, all this money that appears to be going for development and aid, but it's all sucked off in either The money that giant development corporations take as as overhead and take as, you know, they just sub it down to where finally, maybe it's a $100 million project and everybody takes a cut of it. And then by the end, there's some guy down on the ground who's trying to build something with a tiny amount of that original money. And it's, it's really bad. So the infrastructure is no good. You know, and Fantom Aid has done that. And it's, it has to do with greed and corruption in both the donor country and the host country. So that's not going to do us any good. And will, will the insurgents, will, you know, the conservative Afghan people go back into power? Probably, just, just as they are in Saudi Arabia or a lot of other countries. But it's the Afghans to run, it's, the, it's their country. They've run their country for centuries and centuries. And I'll be honest, most Afghans just would like for us to go, just please leave. The people that are, of course, making many millions from it, they would like for this to go on. But Afghanistan has been at war for over 30 years. It's a country that has essentially national PTSD. And we need to stop. And for us, the costs are staggering you know that we're we are destroying our, our military with this it, it's there the number is something like we have 700,000 veterans that are 30 percent or more disabled 320,000 vets with traumatic you know brain injuries PTSD is rampant female Female veterans have suicide rates that are two to five times higher than their civilian counterparts. Uh, And and this is all being borne by less than 1% of the population. In the military families, the care is falling on them. This isn't working. In Afghanistan, there were tens of thousands of combatant casualties and deaths last year. Um, There were 12,000 civilian casualties, including... 983 kids killed it's you know 50 billion a year this isn't working
0: Douglas Wissing journalist and author of the book hopeless but optimistic thank you for coming on war college again to talk to us about the possibility of a troop surge in Afghanistan and why it is a bad idea thank you thank you for listening to this week's show War College was created by Jason Fields and Craig Hedick. Matthew Galt hosts the show and tracks down our guests. My name's Bethel Hapte, and I trim the fat off these interviews so that all you hear are the juicy bits. To support our show, rate us on iTunes. It'll take you a few minutes, but we'll appreciate it forever. Tweet us ideas for future shows. We're at war underscore college. Till next week.